Hi, friends. Welcome to Unyielding, a podcast for Pathways to Hope Network. Our goal for this podcast is to connect with mothers of children facing the juvenile court system. We want to use this platform to give a voice to the challenges you're facing while you're learning to navigate the sometimes scary and uncertain world we enter when our child has been charged with a crime. For the next 30 or so minutes, we hope that you will feel seen and cared for. We hope that you are reminded of your value and that you leave a little stronger than you arrived. Most importantly, though, we hope to honor the always beautiful, often heart-wrenching, unyielding love that a mother has for her child. Hi, friend. It's good to have you here with us today. Last week, we had a conversation with Pete Feliciano, a recently retired probation counselor who worked for Thurston County Juvenile Courts, and he spoke with us about the probation process, some common misconceptions parents had, and he also shared a really powerful metaphor comparing this journey to riding a bus with your child. You really don't want to miss it, so if you haven't had an opportunity to check that out, I encourage you to do so today. You can find the episode on our website or as always on your favorite podcasting platform. As I've mentioned before, our purpose for doing these podcasts is to help front load you with some basic information so that you can feel a sense of control over what to expect during this process. And I just wanted to thank everyone who's taken the time to send in messages, letting us know what's been resonating with you. It's been really helpful to receive that feedback. And if you have suggestions about other perspectives you're interested in hearing about, or if you would like to come on the show and share your own journey, please reach out. You can email me your ideas at afrey.pathways at gmail.com. So before we get started with this episode, I would just like to share that I am so grateful for the young man I have the privilege of interviewing today. I originally spoke with him about a year ago when I was first considering starting this podcast. And at the time I was working on the what to expect concept, in particular, the what to expect with your child episode. The episode would highlight the child at the center of it all our son or daughter who had temporarily gone off track and was learning in real time how to navigate the juvenile court system while feeling the full impact of a decision they made gone wrong. And this incredible young man spoke openly with me about his experiences growing up and his encounters with the juvenile court system. I was just so impressed with him that before we even got off the phone, I asked him if he would consider coming on the show for an interview someday, and he agreed on the spot. So it's an incredible honor to come full circle with him and to be in a position to share his story with you. Our goal for today's episode is to reassure you on this journey. We hope that his story will encourage you to keep pushing forward in your own. Please welcome Blake to the show. Hi, Blake. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I'm so grateful that you're here today. I know that today is your day off, and I'm really so thankful for you coming on the show today and giving our community what I truly believe, Blake, is the gift of your perspective on what it was like to be a child who had to navigate the world of juvenile court, probation, and detention. 
to get us started, I know that this has to be a little nerve wracking. And there were so many times through this process that I really expected you to back out. I, I really, I really thought that you would be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do this. So I guess I'd like to start by asking you what made you willing to come on to the show and to talk about your experience with us? Uh, yeah. So what made me willing to come on the show is going through it personally for myself. Sometimes people who have been through the same stuff as you might feel different talking to a counselor who hasn't been to juvie before. And it kind of all started for me, you know, like when I was locked up, I, I was always involved in the youth leadership classes and stuff. So yeah, it's a little nerve wracking, but I've had, you know, I've talked in front of lawyers and legislators and prosecutors, judges and stuff before about kind of the same type of stuff. So I'm excited. That's awesome. So it sounds like, yeah, you, you recognize that there is a need for your perspective that's out there. And that's, uh, that's something that you're super open to sharing. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know this podcast, actually, I know that it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people, but I also know that this process will prove to benefit you in providing some closure on the past. If there's anything that you may still be holding on to. So are you ready to get started? Yes. So I'd like to lead off by asking if you'd be willing to share with our audience what age you were when you first encountered the juvenile justice system and maybe a little bit about what the circumstances were around that event. Yeah, so the first time I, I was in uh, seventh grade, it was the summer going on to my eighth. So I was about, what, 12 or 13. I was, I was 13. and. Okay. You know, I wasn't listening to my mom. I had just, you know, started getting to that age where I'm like, oh, like, oh, I want to stay out till 10, not nine. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so it's so, you know, I started pushing it and I started like seeing kind of what my mom could take. And um, mm -hmm. and it got to the point where I had ran away for a couple of days where I was on probation I wasn't on youth at risk, so I wasn't on anything that um, I could be held accountable legally, so I <laughs> didn't have a warrant. Um, my mom and grandpa found me, and they called the police, who couldn't do anything at the time, but tell my mom that she can put me physically in the car, and five minutes of my mom trying to, you know, I'm six foot and she's, you know, five foot eight, and she's sitting there trying to pull me in the car and it's not happening. The cop yeah. just the cop just goes, oh, I saw you assault your mom. And then I get arrested kind of, you know, just to stop a scene and that type of stuff. But yeah, that was the first time. OK, 13. yeah. 13. Wow. Yeah. And what was that like? I am assuming they took you in the cop car right then and they took you to the juvenile detention center. Yeah. So when I first got put into or when I first got um, arrested, so, you know, even before I was in the cop car, when I was detained and in handcuffs, my heart was already racing. Yeah. And um, when I was put into the car, I, for a second, you know, it kind of felt like I, it, it kind of felt like they were trying to scare me, you know, like, I, oh, I'm just going home. Like, there's no reason to be mad. I did nothing wrong. And yeah. then, um, and then passing the opposite way of, of my house and started getting realer and realer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Was, 
I was a little shooken up going in, not knowing what to expect and stuff. I'm pretty sure I had gone in pretty early in the morning. Mm-hmm. So, so when you go in your first day, you don't really come out. You don't come out to eat. So all day long, you know, I was in my cell and I had these random people coming to my door to see the new guy. And, you know, it's kind yeah. of freaky. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and your mom was probably freaking out also, cause I'm sure that's not what she wanted in that situation. Yeah, of course. At that age, do you, do you feel like looking back, like, did you blame your mom for that incident? At the age? Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the only thing that I, the only thing that I would look at is, oh, well, who, who called the cops, you know, mm-hmm. like not, oh, I made these choices. I always was the one to point the blame, you know, right. oh, you called the cops. I'm the reason I went to jail. If you didn't call them, they wouldn't have came. That's, that was always my excuse. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's pretty common for, um, for kids that are that age, thinking back to when you were, you know, 14, 15, 16, what would you say was the most important, uh, thing to you? In other words, like what influenced the decisions that you were making at that time? At the time, I think it was just a mix of not knowing who I wanted to be and definitely hanging out with the wrong crowd of people for sure influenced a lot of things that hanging out with someone else who never smoked weed I wouldn't know how to smoke weed little things like that but yeah I think for sure the biggest would be the choice of friends yeah and we talked in our pre-interview we you gave some examples of how you know at times when you were with certain friends or if you were dating a girl that was going to school well then you were going to school if you were you know if you were hanging out with kids who were playing basketball, then you were hang- then you were playing basketball. And so that does, that does have a pretty big influence on, um, on, you know, which, which direction you're heading. Do you think that that ties back into just for kids um, at that age to have a sense of belonging with a group? Um, yeah, probably. I remember growing up and only knowing what my mom and what my mom's side of the family does, you know, like I had gone out to visit my dad and lived around a different environment, but, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to grow out and branch out and see if you like other stuff. um, Yeah. is you know, you don't really know until you try. Yeah. And so you're just trying to, you're just trying to figure out kind of who you are at that time. Yeah. There's, there's that process to it. Would you say that during that time, kind of some of the most important things for you were, was like being with your friends and, and hanging out with them. And that was the ultimate goal was to be able to, uh, you know, have fun and make your own decisions. Yeah. And not have to worry about pretty much responsibilities. Uh, you know, I just didn't want to go to school. You know, I thought school was boring. I just wanted to hang out with my friends instead, or, I wanted to be out all night and sleep in all morning, stuff like that. Yeah. So what was your relationship with your mom like during that time? Um, I remember my mom and I, you know, we would talk, you know, and have conversations. I remember being at the age of going into freshman year, 14, 15 years old, and I just felt embarrassed to talk to my mom about anything or, you know, it feels weird talking to, you know, a woman about certain things, you know, maybe dating, girlfriends, that type of stuff. 
So I remember I kind of would just share a little bit or we would talk about little things. And the rest of the time, you know, I just remember her being angry or her her being sad about something I did, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. That's a lot of what I remember from back then. So that's interesting. So you're talking a little bit about what I think is also a normal process, especially between boys and moms. I think that like when, when you're younger, like there's the whole concept or the idea of like a mama's boy, you know, like your mom is kind of your person and you love on her and you hug on her all the time. And then as you get older, you know, you're, you're as a young man kind of pulling away from that a little bit. And so there becomes like this awkwardness in sharing, you know, how much to share of your life and, and what you share. Did you feel at times like, you know, if your mom was unhappy with some of the decisions that you were making that by sharing more of what you might've been thinking would bring on more of those conversations that you were trying to avoid? Yeah. You know, I always felt that, you know, it was just going to be always I'm in the wrong and, you know, what my mom tells me to do is the right thing to do, you know? And, um, I kind of just didn't want to hear that I was wrong. I didn't like being wrong. (laughs) I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure a lot, most people don't, but you Mm -hmm. know, there's a point where you have to, um, accept and learn from your mistakes and stuff. So being wrong, isn't always, you know, a bad thing. You just, the learning and growing from that wrong thing you did. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard as parents to remember that because we just want to protect our kids from, you know, suffering consequences, but you're right. Being wrong isn't necessarily bad. And there is a lot of learning that comes when, when we do make wrong decisions. In fact, most of our learning probably comes from that. Yeah, for sure. So we discussed your first experience in detention after that, after that first experience, did anything change for you? And if so, how long did that change last? After the first time, nothing really changed. So that first time, I'm pretty sure I got locked up early in the morning, um, like I said, and I got out the next day, probably around noonish after court. And I want to say about like two weeks, like no longer than three weeks um, after that, I was locked up again for three months and for a period of time every time I got locked up I was like oh yeah you know this sucks I'm not doing this again and then I get out and you know within a short amount of time I'm I'm locked right back up again and that happened throughout um yeah probably from the age of 14 to 16 through that couple years just in and out you know promising to change and getting out and still doing the same things Yeah, I think in in our pre-interview, you mentioned that also that there had been between the ages of 14 and 16, kind of just multiple trips back and forth into detention. How was your last experience in the juvenile rehabilitation facility different from the ones that you had prior to that? I think the biggest difference was the severity of what I was being locked up for this time. Mm -hmm. And it kind of went from, you know, oh, you had weird school and, you know, you're getting warrants for running away and missing curfew to, you know, all the way to a robbery. And now I'm facing, potentially facing a 
an adult charge and that's when it really hit me like all that stuff I got away with you know like what if that happened earlier or what if or what if they find out about that too and they add that and my mind kind of just started racing like am I really gonna get five years at the age of 16 years old and that's kind of where at the beginning when I was first brought in like obviously I immediately regretted what I did hearing that I'm not going to get out on bail and oh you're not going home with your mom this time like they they really want me there and considering the adult charges yeah it it really was an eye opener yeah it was pretty obvious that it was a much it was going to be much more serious this time yeah yeah the majority of our listeners are um their moms and most of them are constantly second guessing the way that they're parenting through this time with their child. I'm curious, looking back, what do you feel like your mom did well while navigating that time? I think the most important thing she did was stay consistent and not stop. Like she never, there was never a time where my mom was like, okay, well, you know, she, okay, well, honestly, she would say it, but it never happened. But she would right. be like, oh, yeah, you get locked up again, and I'm not going to come visit you. I'm not going to call you. But she never did, you know, and um, and the consistency of, like, even getting on my head for the stuff I was doing when I wasn't locked up, like, oh, yeah, you know, you're smoking again. You're going to get locked up again, blah, blah, blah. You're not going to school. You're going to get locked up again. I feel like those are good reminders, even... Even if obviously they don't want to hear it. Right. Now that I look back on it now, you know, I can't get those reminders out of my head. Everything that I do, I, I, everything, you know, I go to think about doing. I remember from a kid, my mom telling me, oh, yeah, that's not the right way to do it. Or that's not the way to keep going on the path you're going. Stuff like that. Yeah. You, you talk about how being consistent with what it sounds like is really just showing up for you, right? And not giving up on you. What message do you feel that you kind of came away with as a result of her responding in that way? Because of my mom being consistent and always being there and showing up for me, what that showed me was that, you know, there's people there who do care and um, imagining imagining her actually not showing up after I get out, get locked up again, and she doesn't show up. Some people m- might think of that as tough love. And the only thing I could think of that as, I might not ever come back from that, you know? That yeah. might just push me even more away, you know? When I get out, I might not even want to be around someone who couldn't come see me when I was locked up, mm-hmm. who couldn't write me a letter and tell me they love me. And, you know, tell me... It, they'll be there for me when I get out to help. It's the stuff like that, that feeling loved was one of the biggest things and and having people uh, to care about you and a good support system. Yeah. So in our pre-interview, you talked with me about your time in the juvenile rehabilitation facility when you were 16. Um, Do you feel comfortable talking about how much time you served in that sentence? Yeah, I served um, a sentence of two to two and a half years, which um, I think for the juvenile courts, it was 104 to 136 weeks of juvenile detention. Yeah. 
And do you recall what kind of emotions you were experiencing when you came to grips with the fact that you would essentially be spending the rest of high school, right, in the facility? Yeah, um, honestly, I was at that at that point, I'm pretty sure it took about 56 days, so almost two months to come to to an agreement with the prosecutor within that two months I I honestly felt kind of relieved just knowing that okay well you know I did we did end up getting to stay on the juvenile record so so you know I will be able to get it taken away in the future it won't stay on my permanent record it felt good knowing I'm not going to prison either you know as a 16 year old and especially not facing five to seven years I kind of at that point, it was just a, a relief. I was just ready to, you know, get it started and know how long I'm going to be there for instead of like just a, a big question mark above my head. Yeah, I could do five years. Yeah, I could do two years. Are they going to accept it? What's What am I going to have to agree with for them to accept this? All that like worry and anxiety was not above my head anymore. Now I just yeah. know on this date, I'm going home. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because because it could have been a much worse outcome. Yes. And so the entire time that you were waiting, you were you didn't know which direction it was going to go. And so there was some relief behind one it being done and two it not being the worst case scenario. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Would you be willing to share with our listeners what that time was like for you? Like, what was the day-to-day experience like um, when you were in the um, the facility? Like, the, what were the interactions that you had with staff or with other kids who were also serving their sentence? Yeah, so I remember coming in in the car and being shackled and handcuffed, wearing orange, coming in and I was scared from rumors I have heard that Green Hill is a lot different than Juvie. So I was pretty nervous and I remember walking into the unit and the staff giving me my supplies, my toothpaste, toothbrush, comb, a couple shirts, a couple pairs of pants. And I remember the first thing, like really the first thing one of the staff told me is, oh, I bet you'll get into a fight within your first day. And I was like, dang, you know, even staff are sitting here, you know, telling me, I was like, is this really what this place is like? Right. And, And so... It made me even more anxious to come out later when everyone is out and stuff. But it ended up being, you know, a lot different than I thought. Everyone seemed very friendly. They were just asking, you know, where I was from, you know, asking about me, what school I went to and stuff like that. And we go to school five days a week, probably about the same hours as outside. We go, I'm pretty sure we have, yeah, six periods that are about like 40-ish minutes Okay. So we'd go to school, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We'd have an hour of rec a day, uh, and that's it. You get to choose the weight room or the basketball gym. Every now and then, we would get to go out to the courtyard and go outside in the summers, but literally only the summers. Like We didn't get to go outside too much except for to walk to the cafeteria to eat and back, and then um, for school and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just a lot of school and reading. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What was the, what was the hardest part about being in there? The hardest part for me was 
starting to miss my family and my friends and stuff. The good thing about Green Hill was that they were a little bit better about communication than Juvie was. So you don't have to be a certain level to get a phone call. Every level gets a phone call every single day. That was really cool. You know, it, obviously there's an incentive to get a higher level because you get more phone calls, but they don't take your family away from you as a punishment, which I think is pretty cool. At first, not really. Eventually, I'd say probably six months, it just started getting really hard, you know, talking to my family on the phone and seeing them at visitation. But, you know, I don't actually get to hang out with them. And right. especially because six months is longer than any time I had done before. So right. it yeah. started just feeling realer and realer. That makes sense. Is there anything that helped you get through your time there? Yeah, I'd say for me personally, it was a good mix of everything. I was at the point where even if I didn't want it, I wanted to convince myself that I wanted to change. I just didn't want to get locked up again because I already knew that if I'm sitting here for two years right now, the next time it has to be longer. And that's just the way it works. So yeah, for sure. Family, phone calls, mail, visitations, even if it's not all three, even one or the other was always a super super important. There was for sure a few staff that took their job seriously and they were there because they want, you know, they wanted to try to help change lives. And yeah, that really helped not just being in a wing with someone who's going to take you out for the mandatory hours, you know, and sometimes the staff would do their own little incentives and be like, yeah, you know, if you guys have a good day for the morning crew, I'll get you out on my nighttime crew early or something. That was always right. cool. And um, helped a lot too, you know, not being in my cell as much. I'd also say, so a lot of the programs that they offered um, helped me a lot through too. I finally had the tools to be able to not go back. I'm not just sitting here saying, oh yeah, I'm not going to go back this time and not doing anything about it. I'm sitting in my cell and I'm like, okay, I don't want to go back this time, but what do I have to do? So I, so I got a high school diploma because I could use that when I get out, right. you know, to get right. a job. And then I got, and then I started getting to welding classes and I took a pre-apprenticeship class for carpentry and every, every class they offered that, that had some type of benefit for when I left, I enrolled in and it really helped. It really helped time go by giving me something to do. And it really helped me feel more relaxed about and less anxious about how fast my time was coming to getting out and uh, yeah. being worried about not being ready or being worried about not being able to get a job because of my background and stuff like that. You know, I actually, I have a forklift certification card and a food handlers card, you know, and a high school diploma. So if something doesn't work, I know I'm going to get something that was for sure, probably top two. I'd say staying busy was probably the biggest thing that helped me. Yeah. And you were really like investing in yourself probably for the first time in a really long time where you were yeah. doing something and taking control over your life and really guiding it in the direction that you wanted to go. So that's, I mean, that's, that's not small. That's, that's a pretty, um, a pretty big uh, step to take while you were in there. And I think speaks to how it was different for you this time. And I'm glad that they have those types of 
I don't know, classes, I guess, or, or programs, I guess, that are available for kids to take the opportunity if they're, if that's what they want. And I think you're right. I think it gave you a huge leg up coming out because you knew you were coming out with essentially resources. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about those times in your early teen years where, you know, obviously you've, you've always had a close relationship with your mom, but you were butting heads a little bit. And there's a lot of changes developmentally that occur between 16 and 18. I'm curious, did your relationship change with your mother during that time and in what ways? Yeah, so um, probably around the same amount of time, six months to nine months is when I started, you know, opening up more to my mom. So we would have deeper conversations and visitation or over the phone or even in letters and stuff, you know, I would, I, you know, I was finally taking ownership for the stuff that I did. I think it was a huge relief on her shoulders hearing from me that I know it's not her fault because I know my mom blamed herself a lot, which, you know, I, I really wish she didn't. Mm-hmm. And I tell her, I tell her all the time now, you know, like <laughs> all that stuff was because of me, but, you know, just back in the past, it felt like, you know, I had to convince her that I know it's my fault. And so because of those conversations and just like being in the a better mental state myself, ready to take responsibility and ready to, you know, actually make change, it was just easier to have conversations and stuff that I felt uh, ashamed of doing maybe that I wouldn't have wanted to talk to my mom about anymore. You know, I I could tell her, you know, yeah, you know, I did these type of things, but I don't want to do this anymore. That's that's where it changed the most. I think um, when I just started getting an older mind, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're spot on with that. And when we're younger, like, 14, 15, you know, even 16, I I think that you actually got an older mind sooner than a lot of people do, you know, at 16 and 18, things started kind of changing for you. And, and I know you talked about, you had some conversations with your mom during that last time uh, that you were serving out your sentence about what, what you could do moving forward and that she kind of helped shape that in encouraging you in, in moving forward and, and talking about what, what it was going to be like now moving forward. And you were at a place where you were, you were ready to want that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So tell me about what your relationship was like with your siblings during your teen years. Uh, there's three of us. So me and the middle brother were, have always been really close, probably just because we're close in age. We just, you know, liked a lot of the same things growing up as young kids. So getting into like the teen years, I remember, you know, we were still really close when I was home, but mm-hmm. that was the thing, you know, I was at home a lot. Right. So we didn't hang out with each other as often. I remember them always wanting to be around me when I was. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, we've always been somewhat close, but like a lot closer since things have changed for sure. Just because I'm around more often, we know each other better because we're older. You know, we've grown into liking different things. So now we can really hang out with each other in appropriate way too, where I'm not um, also influencing them in a negative way. 
so things changed for the better and got stronger. Yeah. And you know what? It's my guess that your brothers, they probably learned a lot from watching you and what you experienced. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. They were able to kind of see the struggles that you went through, but they also got the opportunity to see what it's like to rise above those struggles and what it means to start over and do things differently. And I, and I really feel like that's a pretty amazing gift you give them. What do you think about that? Yeah. I've thought about that a few times, you know, and I hope that some of the changes that uh, my brothers made were because of that. And that would make me feel really good. You know, even, even with like going to school, there were times where my mom was scared. My brothers would fall into the same type of stuff and mm -hmm. also end up in the juvenile system because of little signs that they were doing that she remembered me doing and being locked up and my mom on the phone telling me this, you know, like, oh, you know, your brother just got caught, you know, skipping school. And now he got caught smoking weed. He's in a, a class now, just like you were, you know, it, yeah. I would feel so guilty and yeah. feel like they might not have ever seen that. They might not have ever wanted to do something like that uh, if they didn't know I had before. Right. right. Yeah. Seen me do something like that before. Yeah. And she was probably just based on her experiences with you, like hyper aware of everything. And so, yeah. you know, she, she'd freak out if she saw any of those same signs leading that might be leading up to something bigger. Yeah. Listen, I am so grateful for this opportunity to sit down and talk with you today. This time went by so quickly. Would you be willing to keep this going for a little bit longer and we can make this episode into a two-part episode? Yes, of course. Great. Okay, then, friends, that will wrap it up for this week's episode. I hope that this episode served you today. Blake's message today has been a powerful one, and I'm sure that you have found value in his story. If you would like to send a message to Blake about what you took away from this episode, you can email it to me at afrey.pathways at gmail.com, and I will be happy to pass that along to him. And finally, be sure to listen to part two of this podcast where Blake and I continue talking about what life was like for him after those turbulent teen years, his relationships and life now, his advice to parents and his response to me asking if there was anything anyone could have done that would have changed the trajectory of the path he was on. If you're a mom who struggles with the fear of the unknown, you will not want to miss this. Thanks again, Blake. You're welcome. Okay, friends, well, that wraps it up for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Unyielding. I really hope that you found this information helpful and that it served you in some way today. If you did, could you show some love to this community of mamas by leaving a review and subscribing? You know how lonely this journey can be. And when you leave positive reviews and subscribe, it makes a big difference in helping other struggling moms out there find us. Oh, and don't forget to check out Pathways to Hope Network's website. The link will always be in the show notes below, where you can access an ever-growing library of resources, like a list of local and national resources that may be helpful, a page entirely devoted to frequently asked questions, as well as our blogs that cover a variety of topics. When you visit the page, remember to subscribe so you're added to our monthly newsletter designed to encourage and educate you throughout this process and beyond. You also receive access to our closed Facebook group community, where we break down this podcast even deeper. 
Just a reminder, our closed group is a small group of parents just like you that understands what it's like to have a child going through the juvenile justice system. Take advantage of this opportunity to be part of a safe space where families can come together to talk about their struggles, help answer questions, and provide judgment-free encouragement. You can also find our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where we post five days a week, posts designed to help keep you fighting. Remember, family is like life. It's a fight for territory, and once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want will automatically take over. Until next week, friends, remember we are stronger together.